Good morning. Lee shared last week six words that framed his talk, using the frame his talk. And we've been sharing those six words kind of throughout our series, just on and off, but he put them all together. And really, they're a framework for every talk we're doing in this series on heaven. So I'm going to steal his thought. It was a good thought and use it as a framework for mine this morning. Those six words were one day referring to future reality, uh, the new heavens and the new earth, the day of the Lord. And then that's not yet. So what do we do? Now what? How do we live in light of that future coming reality? So let's start first with some one day truths, some future realities. Here's the first one. I know this is a duff, you've been here the last few weeks because we've said this over and over, but it's worth hearing and I wanna review it again this morning. Jesus will create one day and establish new heavens and a new earth. He is coming back someday. We don't know exactly will there be a thousand year reign, all those, we're not gonna get caught up in the weeds of that as we go through this series on the new heavens and the new earth and on heaven. But lots of different viewpoints, but he's coming back, that's clear, it's for sure. There will be a day of the Lord spoken of in the Old Testament, uh, a day of judgment on evil, a day of purging of the heavens as Leash talked about last week and the earth from all forms of evil. And there will be a day, not only when God judges evil, but when he brings blessing and reward, eternal life and companionship to his beloved ones. The called out ones, if you want to use that phrase, the church of Jesus Christ, the bride of Christ, his beloved bride, the ones he came for. Let me just read a few verses that remind us of that very basic reality we've been preaching about. I'm going to start in the book of Isaiah and read three, kind of in chronological order. And you can see this theme start to develop just from these little samplings of verses I'm giving you. Isaiah wrote about 700 years or so before Jesus walked the earth. And then after those three verses in Isaiah, I'm gonna read one from the book of Revelation. That's John, probably the longest living of the 12 disciples. Probably he's in exile on an isle called Patmos. And he's writing, he says, in the spirit on the Lord's day, and he has a lengthy vision. And we get glimpses of what he sees. And he's going to see the same thing that was prophesied about, in his case, about 750 to 800 years later, because he's writing at the end of the first century. So let's start in Isaiah, Isaiah 51, six. God's speaking to Isaiah. Isaiah, he says, lift up your eyes to the heavens. Just take a look around. Look at the earth beneath. Someday, the heavens will vanish like smoke and the earth will wear out like a garment. And then later in Isaiah, he says this to him, Isaiah 65, 17, behold, I will create one day new heavens and a new earth. The former things, the old heavens and the old earth will not be remembered, nor will they ever come to mind. And then Isaiah 66, 22, he says this about the new heavens and the new earth, how long they're gonna last. He said, the new heavens and the new earth that I make will endure before me, meaning they will last forever. They will not wear out like the old heavens and the old earth did. And then Revelation 21, verse one first, John sees this. He says, I see a new heaven. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And then in verse five, Jesus speaks to John and says, the one who was seated on the throne of the universe says this, I'm making everything new. That was in the video, we just heard the introductory video and that will happen one day. Now let me share with you some other 
future realities. Here's another one. And this one is one we don't talk about a lot. And it's the subject of my talk this morning. What I've been assigned to teach on this morning is rewards in heaven. There will be rewards for Jesus' disciples in heaven. It's mentioned by Jesus on numerous occasions. It's mentioned by New Testament writers many times. I'm going to look at just a few, a sampling of those references right now. We're going to go into a little dive in scripture in the New Testament this time. And we're going to go first to Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And we'll go to a famous section that probably some of you memorized in some reform at least, maybe as a child. It's the Beatitudes or the blessing verses. And Jesus says this in Matthew 5, beginning in verse 11 and going through 12. He said, blessed, I always like to put my name in here because he's speaking to us today. Blessed are you, Jim, when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Now, let me tell you what he didn't say. What he didn't say was, blessed are you, Jim, when you undergo persecution for acting like a jerk. Blessed are you when you screw up and people talk about you behind your back because you screwed up. He's not saying that. He's saying, blessed are you when people are accusing you falsely for righteousness sake, for my sake, when you're doing good and people are slandering you or even hurting you physically or hurting your family or economically depriving you uh, or maybe in extreme cases, as has been throughout history and is still happening today, killing you. He says, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. Now, is the reward just eternal life? <laughs> I don't think so, because he's going to make specifics about what some of it is. But great is your reward. He promises rewards in some day in heaven based on how you live your life and some of the bad things that might happen to you because of it. And then continuing with the Sermon on the Mount, he says this later, Matthew 6, 19 through 21. He says, Jim, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Now, he just got through blasting the hypocrites the Jewish religious leaders, because they were always doing things, showy praying, showy giving, doing things to get the attention of the crowds, and they were getting the esteem of the people. And Jesus said, how they got the reward? He said, don't invest your time, your talent, your possessions, your money, your capabilities, your relationships, and things on earth. It says those are going to be destroyed. The stock market's going to crash again. Surprise, it will, it'll happen. And, and, and not only that, your house could burn up. Uh, your car, it's eventually going to need a bunch of work on it. It's going to be a big pain in the you know what. It's going to be a lot of hassle. Having, even having your car that was so nice when you bought it, things are going to wear out here on earth. And thieves can break in and steal. And even if that's not the case, you can't take it with you anyway. And, and, it, and it's going to burn up, to use another illustration. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Well, how do I do that? Well, we're going to see that this morning. You invest those resources in life in things that matter, things that will last, primarily people in relationships where moth and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. And then he adds this other little glimmer of truth for where your treasure is, there where your heart or your passions or your resources or your obsessive thinking or your thought life there your heart is going to go also. And one more passage in Matthew, Matthew 16, 27. Later in Jesus' ministry, his favorite phrase for himself was son of man. 
That's straight from the book of Daniel's prophetic teaching hundreds of years before. Daniel referred to the Messiah that would come as the Son of Man. He said, for the Son of Man is going to come. He's talking about coming again in glory, in his Father's glory with angels. And then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Wow. Apparently, there's going to be some sliding scale. Things like, to whom much is given, much will be required come into play. Things like, okay, I'm going to give you a certain number of parables, a certain number of talents, or a certain amount of money, and you will be expected to bring a return. We'll look at that in a few minutes on that investment. Based on what you've done, it sounds like there's different rewards, not just eternal life, but rewards in heaven more than eternal life is going to be a reward. And then some other passages of Scripture. Let's switch from Jesus' teaching now to some of Paul's thoughts on the topic. 1 Corinthians 11, excuse me, verse 3, verse, chapter 3, verses 11 through 14. Paul says this. He says he's building on the foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ on the atoning sacrificial death, the fulfillment of the Jewish law of sacrifice that required the blood of a perfect sacrifice to atone for the sins of Adam for race. Whether you like that or not, God wrote it and it's his story. He gets to write the rules for the universe. Based on the fact that Jesus came and laid down his life as an atoning sacrifice, was crucified, he was dead, buried, and resurrected, the gospel we can build on that, plant churches, invest in people, disciple people, share our faith, do, do good deeds, manifest the ethos of heaven by the way we live, the way we speak, the way we treat people. He says that's building on the foundation. He said, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on the foundation using gold, silver, and costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is. In other words, the things you've invested in will ultimately come out in the wash, so to speak, to use an old phrase. Because the day, what day? Judgment day. The day anticipated in the Old Testament when God will come with his angels and judge the living and the dead and purge the heavens of evil and purge the earth of evil. We'll bring it to life. It'll be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive what? A reward for your labors. Jesus is clearly using the promise of rewards and so is Paul to incentivize you and say it's okay to think about the fact that you can invest in eternity. Another passage of scripture, 1 Timothy 6, 8 through 19. He's talking to his young disciple Timothy who is a young pastor of a church, uh, a young elder, a young pastor, and he says, probably, this is a loose paraphrase, you've got all kinds of people in your congregation, Timothy. Some of them have more stuff, more material possessions than others. Most people in this room, even the college students, will be thought of in the first century as extremely wealthy. So this is probably referring to almost everyone in this room. He says, to command those who are rich in this present world, that's not on the screen, not to be arrogant or put their faith in wealth. But skip down to verse 18 now. Command them, people with significant amount of resources, wealthy people, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous. He's talking about a kingdom principle here, what I call radical generosity and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure. Wow. Wow. He's promising wealthy people to incentivize them to invest in what matters and has eternal value 
rewards or treasure in heaven as a firm foundation for the coming age. What age? The age that is to come. The age after the day of the Lord, the new heavens and the new earth. So that they may take hold of life that is truly life. As Rick Warren says, not just the dot on the line that stretches to eternity, the 70 or 80 years you have here, but the line that stretches throughout all eternity. That's what matters. What else can we say about this topic of rewards or treasures in heaven? Revelation twenty two twelve, to prove that the Bible is congruent. Jesus, again, appearing to John, who is in the spirit on the Lord's day and has a powerful extended vision. He says, look, John, I'm coming soon. Now, Jesus' definition of soon, as I always like to say, is a lot different than mine or yours. It's been 2,000 years and he hadn't come back yet. But the Bible says something about a day being like a thousand years and so on to the Lord. He's coming back. And he says the same thing he said earlier when he walked on the earth. He said, my reward is with me. I'm coming with rewards. And I will give to each person according to what they have done. He promises more than eternal life. He promises rewards in heaven. C.S. Lewis quote. I love this quote. It's pretty earthy. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer, it's an old British term, of a holiday at the sea. Let's investigate some more one day truth, some more future realities, sticking with this concept or this idea of rewards in heaven. What do these rewards that Jesus promises look like and what will we do in heaven other than just worship? It's not spelled out exactly, but we have some information. We have some hints. And I want to share with you some of those. These aren't all of them, but some of them. And I want to start with the most important one. You will have deep, rich relationships in heaven with people that you invested in or invested in you here on earth. Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians 2.19. Now I'm not gonna turn to every one of these verses. We can't possibly do that this morning. You can look it up later about the Thessalonians. He says, someday I'm gonna get to have communion with you. Not, I'm not just talking about the bread and the wine. I'm talking about having fellowship with them in eternal dwellings or in heaven. And you're gonna be my prize. My reward will be the fact that I invested in you and it panned out. You've done well, he said. And we'll all be together in heaven. That'll be part of our reward. Luke 16, 9 says it very directly. It's a very odd verse, quite frankly, at the end of a very straightforward, as someone told me in between the services, John did, John Harrigan, parable that kind of bothers us because Jesus seems to be uh, commending a guy that I would describe as a crook. And he, what he's talking about is he wants to make a simple point. Take your resources and invest them with an eye toward eternity. He says this, I tell you, use worldly wealth, money, possessions, things like that, time, talent, influence, 
to gain friends, invest them in relationships for yourself so that when it is gone and it will be gone, we always say around here, there's no trailer hitch in a hearse. You're not taking it with you. It'll be gone or as the Bible says, it'll burn someday. You will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Think about that for a minute. Jesus is promising there's going to be all kinds of visiting in one another's homes in heaven. That's an incredibly powerful relational thought. We'll expand on that thought in just a few minutes. And then other things. We will eat and drink and feast in heaven. Matthew 26, 29. Revelation 19, 9. And Revelation 22, 2 are some passages of scriptures that tell us that. There will be dwellings and cities and nations on the new heaven and new earth. John 14, 1 through 3 says that. Uh, Luke 16, 9, the passage I just read says that. Revelation 19, 9 says that. Revelation chapter 21 talks about that. There will be animals, plants, rivers. There's going to be a glorified nature. You think the scenes now are beautiful, and they are. They're fantastic. Some of you really get off like I do on some of the incredible experiences you can have outdoors. God is incredibly creative. But oh my goodness, it's going to be even better in the new heavens and the new earth. Isaiah 65, 25 hints at this. Revelations chapter 21 and 22 hint at this. There will be a restoration of our original design to rule. We're going to look at a passage in just a minute in Genesis and then one in Revelation. And right before the first service, a friend came up, Michael Blanton, and said this to me. He and his wife have been reading the book that we promised the Eldridge book together that we've offered, many of you have bought. He says he has a summary for it. He said, we're all lovesick for Eden. Think about that. We want it to be perfect. If we could just go back to Eden, we are going to Eden. It's going to be bigger. It's going to be more expansive. It's going to be more incredible. And there will be no snake in this Eden. That's an incredible thought. Let's look at what we were created for. Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28. Then God said, let us, the term there is the plural for majesty, Elohim. Let us, meaning the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, the animals, and over all the creatures and move along the ground. So God did it. He created mankind, male and female, in his own image, the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Why did he create them? To rule. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth, subdue it. That means rule over it, rule over the fish and the sea. And again, all the living creatures. We were created to steward, manage, and rule over a planet. Now, in just a little bit of time, our forefather, Adam, and mother, Eve, hand over the title deed to the planet, to the snake. But that's a whole other story, and we're not talking about that this morning primarily. But someday, the rule of Adam's and Eve's kids here on earth will be reestablished. You're thinking, wow, is that really going to happen? Where's that at? Well, go to Revelation 5.10. Revelation 5.10. John again on the Spirit, in the Spirit of the Lord's Day. He hears songs being sung in heaven about the Lamb who is worthy to take a scroll 
And he hears this song about the lamb. You, meaning Jesus, have made them, meaning us, the bride of Christ. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. How? They will reign on the earth. They'll rule over the earth, the new heavens and the new earth. We'll have ruling responsibilities in heaven. More on that again in a few minutes. We'll look at some other verses. Well, let's do it right now. There will be authority structures, oversight responsibilities, and creative and satisfying work in heaven. In the parable of the talents, famous parable of the talents, Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30, if you'll recall the story, Jesus is a wealthy individual who gives some money or some resources to some of his servants, and he tells him to invest those and give him his return when he gets back. It's like a man who goes away on a journey. And he's talking about the kingdom of heaven, the coming kingdom. We'll see again. I'm going to pick out a couple of these verses in just a minute. I don't want to read the whole thing. And each time he comes back and he gives, uh, the, the, the servants give their return on their investment to their master. He always says, well done, and then he promises a reward. And let's see what kind of reward he promises. Let's first start with verse 14. Again, it, meaning the kingdom of heaven or the new heavens and the new earth, will be like a man going on a journey, Jesus, who calls his servants and entrusts his wealth to them. At the end of verse 23, here's an example of the reward that's promised. Well done, good and faithful servant. Good job investing your time, talents, treasures, and influence in what matters. You are faithful with a few things. I'm going to put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Apparently, our master and us are going to take incredible satisfaction in meaningful work over supervision and responsibility. I'll be honest with you. When I read that this week and reflected on it, it didn't wind my clock. I am 67 and a half years old. I had a terrible cold all week. And the reason I'm sitting on this stool because I almost collapsed last hour because I was up all night with a stomach virus. That hit our household last night. We had it last month. We got it again this month. Am I whining a little bit? Okay. <laughs> a little bit. Just a little bit. My point is, during the week, and I'm no different than the rest of you. All of you have got people. As you get older, you get tired and you get kind of tired of it. And, and uh, I've heard there's this thing called retirement. I'm not planning it. And, uh, but this week, being sick with a cold and with a stomach virus, all the people that were wanting a piece of me that I was supposed to be responsible for or some project I was responsible for, it got a little weary. But in heaven, I won't be old. I won't be tired. There won't be stomach viruses. There won't be colds. There won't be cancer. And work will be meaningful. My work is meaningful now but I'll have the capacity for it. And God is going to reward you somehow, some way with more responsibility and more meaningful work and influence. That's a hint of something about rewards in heaven. Number seven, there will be farming and gardening there. That's possibly Isaiah 65 and other references. And oh, by the way, don't worry about your allergies. You won't have any, okay? Let's go back to probably what I think is the most important hint we have about rewards in heaven and what heaven will be like, and that's horizontal relationships with other people. I want to revisit that idea for a moment. I want you to think for a moment, let's make this personal with you, not just Jim, you, about family members and friends that love Jesus 
that have already finished their race and gone home before you. You want to see them? You want to talk to them? You want to spend time with them? Think about people, maybe even if they're alive, you hadn't seen in a while, that have invested in you personally. We don't have time for all the relationships here. Think about the people you've invested in, maybe that you hadn't seen in a while. Think about, imagine being able to entertain them. Go to their place for dinner, as it says we will, without your sin nature. (laughs) No sin nature. And they don't have one either. And there's no demonic interference. All that will be gone. What will we like to enjoy their company with no deadlines? Diane Higgins sent me a Tim Keller sermon this week to listen to that addressed the idea of relationships in heaven. Here's a summary of Tim Keller's thoughts, my summary of his thoughts. Love and relationships can be a source of pain here. That will not be the case in eternity. The new heavens and new earth will be a world of love and loving relationships. In addition to and related to the fact that our sin nature and our inner will be gone, Tim lists five practical differences between love love and relationships here and there. You could probably list a dozen. These are counselor type things, something you'd get from your counselor. Uh, One of our counselors loved it and came up in the service and was talking about it. But just listen to these and think about them. We want to be loved for our own sake, not as a means to some end. Doesn't always happen that way here. That will happen perfectly in the age to come. We'll be able to express and receive love with no impediments like pride or jealousy or lust or envy or ambition. Think about that. We want our love to always be reciprocated and it will be in the age to come. When you love someone, number four, you're never happy unless they're happy, if you really love them. There's a saying, most of the parents in the room that have adult children can relate to this real well, or teenagers. You're only as happy as your most unhappiest child. It's true. We hurt for other people that we truly love. Everybody's gonna be happy in heaven, so we won't have to empathize with their pain. There won't be any pain. Lastly, We want to love without fear of losing the relationship. And the ultimate loss of relationship that's in the back of our mind at all times is death. I remember when I was a little kid, I lived two blocks from my grandfather. My grandfather was disabled. He has an incredible backstory I don't have time to go into. Blue collar worker. Uh, I got a lot of my views on life and politics from him. And he, he would spend tons of time with me because he had tons of time to spend. He took me fishing all the time, taught me how to fish, taught me how to do all kinds of things that I still do to this day. So I had my first picture. I was two and a half to three years old when I went fishing with him the first time. It hangs behind my desk on a bulletin board. I loved my grandfather. He was a kind, gentle man. Loved to spend time with him. But always in the back of my mind, even from the time I was a little kid, there was this fear. I would cry at night in my bed, several times a week usually thinking about the day that my grandpa would die. Ultimately, he did. When I was 20 years old in college, at a terrible time in my life, he passed away. And it hurt. It still hurts some today to think about the loss. That won't happen in heaven. The fear of losing any relationship will not be there 
in the age to come in the new heavens and the new earth. Okay, but all of that, all I've been talking about up to this point is not yet. What about now? How should we live in light of these incredible spiritual truths and realities? Let's go back to Ephesians, or excuse me, Matthew 6, 19, and let's expand the passage to verses through 24 and look also at another section, 33. Again, remember, this is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has just got through blasting the Pharisees for investing showy preaching, showy teaching, showy fasting. And he says, they're, they're, they're doing stuff to get rewards here on heaven. Don't you be like them. Store up for yourselves treasure in heaven, Jim. Invest in eternity and your heart will be in those things. And then he starts talking about the eye in verse 22. He said, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. This is a little difficult to understand. I've had it translated for me by reading commentaries and by talking to other people. If your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. What he's saying is the things that you reflect on, the things you think about, the things you look at, the things you're obsessed with become who you are. And if you're double-minded, if you're thinking all the time only about the things of this world and not focusing primarily on the things of the next world and eternity and living with the end in mind as you should be, then the light within you will be darkness and how great that darkness is. And then he goes on in verse 24, he says, nobody can serve two masters. Either will hate one and love the other or devote to one and despise the other. And he says, you can't love both God and money. Now, actually, that word translated money, no one knows exactly how to translate the word. The word is mammon. It's a transliteration. And really, he's talking about something much bigger than money. He's talking about the things of this age that, again, are going to burn up. He said, you can't serve both God and eternal things and serve the things of this world primarily. That doesn't mean you don't work. You don't think about cooking dinner. You don't think. That doesn't mean that you're always only thinking about eternal things, but you're thinking about the things of this earth in light of eternity with the end in mind. Then he goes on in the next few verses to say, by the way, quit worrying about all that stuff here, about where you're going to get your next meal, where you're going to get clothing, your house, all that stuff. He says, I'll meet your needs and your basic necessities if you'll focus on the things that matter. And if you don't and keep focusing on the things that are here, you're going to be anxious and worried and wrought up all the time. And then in verse 33 is kind of the clincher. But seek first his kingdom, that coming king, and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well, the stuff you need. Okay. I ask our resident expert on such things as eternal life, the day of the Lord, the kingdom of God, the new heavens and the earth, to comment on the passage I just read to you and exposited, Matthew 6, 19 through 34. So let's see what John Harrigan has to say. We videoed him. This is a quick three-minute soundbite. I think you're going to like it. towards a cataclysmic end known as the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, the day of wrath, uh, the last day, or simply the judgment or the wrath to come. History is climaxing towards this single event which defines everything else. There's everything before the day of God, this age, and everything after the day of God, the age to come. And in Matthew
Matthew 6, Jesus is giving a rebuke to the Pharisees, actually, when he tells his disciples, don't be like the Pharisees, because they fast, pray, give to the poor, and they say they live for the age to come, the resurrection and eternal life, but actually they live for this age. They live for the reputation of man, they live for money, they live for prestige, and Jesus says they've received their reward in full in this age. And at the judgment, when the righteous receive the reward of eternal life on a new earth in the age to come, they will not receive that reward. They have received their reward in this life. So he turns to his disciples and says, Therefore, do not store up treasure on earth associated with this age. Rather, store up treasure in heaven with God, who will open the heavens and descend on the last day, on the day of judgment. And judge the living and the dead, and you'll receive your reward from heaven at that time. And then he goes into the eye as the lamp of the body, and it has to be singular, focused on the age to come and eternal life. It can't be evil, focused on this age and the age to come. You can't serve two masters, this age and the age to come. You can't serve the spirit of this age. And if you do, you're going to be filled with anxiety and all the things that are associated with this present evil age. And so it concludes in Matthew 6 with, Therefore, seek first the kingdom for, the, for Jews that was at the day of God. It's synonymous with the resurrection and eternal life. It's just saying, seek first eternal life. Actually live for the age to come. You can't have an eye that lives for both ages, this age and the age to come. But seek first, set your eye on eternal life, and this life will be provided for you. And this is picked up throughout the apostolic witness, that this is the singular prize of the apostles. That is, attaining the resurrection of the dead, eternal life. This is why the return of Jesus is the center of focus, and they prayed Maranatha. It's focused on Jesus returning and judging the living and the dead, inaugurating the day of Christ Jesus. And it's why the New Testament closes with the book of Revelation. Behold, I'm coming soon. My recompense or my reward is with me. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. It's pretty good stuff. First of all, I'm going to push a book on you. We're, we're big in selling books around here, and this is one we promote every th two or three years or so. This one's cheaper. It's only $7. We've got a whole bunch of them out there in the foyer for the next few weeks. Uh, we usually keep it out there. Uh, this is called The Treasure Principles by Randy Alcorn. A lot of the stuff, in fact, what I'm about to share with you, this allegory, I didn't take it word for word, but I kind of deduced it from Alcorn's little book. He's got a much longer version of this. It's 367 pages that I got wore out reading several years ago. This one is only 127 or so pages, and it's very small pages, so it's pretty easy to get through this one. I strongly recommend it. The Treasure Principle by Randy Alcorn. It's talking about the things we've been talking about this morning. Okay, I'm going to close with a story. It's a story that those of you that have been around here for a decade or so have probably heard me share at least a couple of other times. It's an allegory. I'm sharing it to inspire you. I'm going to take a few liberties, but I think the principles are straight from Scripture. When Jesus was spoke to first century Jews, he used primarily agriculture or agrarian metaphors and allegories. Several times he referred to God as a wealthy farmer. 
Now that doesn't relate to most of the people in this room very well. There aren't a lot of farmers in here. There may be some hobby farmers. There are very few people, if any, in this room in Northwest Arkansas that make a living farming. So it's not so far-fetched to change the metaphor or the allegory a little to make Jesus a wealthy businessman. You can decide for yourself whether I've messed up as I share the points of this story. Assume for a minute that God has a monopoly on all the assets in the universe. I don't think that's too (laughs) far-fetched. He is a star-breathing God. Everything we see, even the cattle on a thousand hills, the Bible says, even when you look up in the night sky and it's big, he's really, really big. (laughs) It's all his. Even your capacity to generate wealth, and it's a good thing, your capacity to generate wealth, was given to you by God. Everything you have, you had nothing to do with producing and going back to its ultimate source. God bless you for doing it. But just because he wants to, he has loaned all of us some of his assets, differing degrees to some of you, to use as you see fit for a few years in your brief stay here on his little planet on the backside of the Milky Way galaxy in some cul-de-sac called our solar system. Strangely enough, this extremely wealthy business owner's desire is that we willingly reinvest those assets that he's loaned us, the time, talent, possessions, and influence you have. He's asking you to reinvest those assets that are his anyway and he's loaned to you in his business. And they're they're his. He promises us, if we'll do that, a massive long-term return on our investment. If you choose to invest, in most cases, you'll be required to defer your gain. Sometimes you will get some rewards from God here on this earth, but in most cases, the gain has to be deferred. Dividends, however, are guaranteed, guaranteed, but not immediately, not in this life. In order to invest, you have to trust management. You have to trust management with those resources. Speaking in the owner's terms, he calls that tangible faith, faith. And he has promised, again, great rewards someday to those that invest in faith. The wealthy business owner or CEO has a name for his company. We've been talking about that the last few weeks. It's called the kingdom of God. It's coming to earth in fullness someday. His mission statement, and he's got more than one, is to reconcile people primarily sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, the pinnacle of his creation to himself, to tear down the devil's work, healing, restoration, self-sacrifice, self-discipline, forgiveness, redemption, justice, joy, peace, productive work, a restoration of all things. That's what he's into. And oh, by the way, if you hadn't figured it out, if you hadn't really taken a look around lately, he loves variety. I mean, he loves it. And his great passion is that someday at the final accounting, stop, there will be one. (laughs) There will be a final accounting deep in your heart. You've known it ever since you were able to think shortly after birth and every human tries to deny it. But there will be a final accounting. We will stand before him and give an account. When the window of opportunity to invest is forever shut, 
that millions of people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation will stand before him in heartfelt worship and they will enjoy a fruitful, exciting, and wonderful eternity with him and with each other. Question now, application questions. The worship team can come on up. Will you invest? How much will you invest? I would argue that all depends on how much of the story you really buy into. According to the Bible, the gauge of your faith is very practical. What are you doing with your time, your talent, your possessions, and your influence? What are you investing the resources of your life in? The proof of your faith is an open book for all to see. Now, let's leave the allegory and return again to the great truths from Scripture we've been talking about. Rewards in heaven. He says he's coming back, and he really, 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 really is coming back. And his reward is really, really, really with him. He's not a liar. And I can't tell you exactly what that reward will look like. We've got some hints, but here's the deal. I don't know if you're one of these nature gals or nature guys, but I think everybody ought to be a little bit. If you're taking a look around lately, I've seen his sunrises. I've seen his sunsets. I've seen the moon go down right at dawn like a great orange ball. I've climbed some of his mountains and I bet most of you have. I've swam in his oceans and I've waded his streams. Eternity with him will not be boring. It won't be. I know it. And not only that, even this morning when I was so sick earlier, and numerous people laid hands on me and prayed for me. I felt his spirit and I felt it many times pulsating inside of me. And I've enjoyed his fellowship, his companionship, and I intend to enjoy it for all eternity. And I hope you'll join me. He's wonderful. He's creative. He's awesome. And I don't want to miss anything that he's got in store for me. And I hope you don't either. So let's live like that with the end in mind. And right now, let's stand and engage him in worship.